Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 158 with Michael Papadak. We're talking resilient relationships, so you'll learn one, the keys to building resilient work relationships, two, how to use the heat curve to achieve collective resilience and innovative breakthroughs, and three, ignored, overlooked, yet critical ground rules for meetings. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep158. And while you're there at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out our cool resources. My favorite, under loved, is the magnifying glass, which just lets you search across 156 episodes of transcript goodness. Any guest who said anything wise, you can summon it in a hurry because it's been transcribed. So that's one. Or some of the email resources from the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course all about slashing through waste at work to free up more time. Or the Gold Nugget email list, which provides the prescriptive wisdom of each guest in an email you can read in under two minutes. So if you wish you could take notes, but alas, you're running your drive and you can't put pen to paper, we do that for you there. So you can sign up on the website or write from your phone by texting NUG, that's N-U-G, short for Gold Nuggets. You text NUG to 444 999, and then you're all set. Here's Michael's story. Michael Pabinek specializes in leadership consulting and providing strategies, tools, and skills to enact change. He's the principal consultant and founder of Michael Pabinek Consulting and has advised leaders from top companies, including Google, Microsoft, and Apple. Prior to that, he worked in Interaction Associates as a general manager and was a systems engineer at Electronic Data Systems. Here is Michael. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. You know, I got a real kick out of, as I was doing my research, I learned that you are the grandson of Kurt Lewin, called the founder or father of social psychology. And I remember in psychology class, my teacher said, I've heard that name pronounced three different ways. I don't know if it's Kurt Lewin, Kurt Levin, Kurt Lewine, Kurt Levine. So first, can you set this story straight? How do we pronounce this great man's name? Well, actually, if you were in Germany, you might have said Levine. Okay. But when he came to the United States, my mother, he's my grandfather, my mom's side, it was always Lewin. So today you would say Kurt Lewin and people that follow his thinking are Lewinians. Okay. Noted. And are you a Lewinian? Absolutely. Well, I'm a Lithuanian. So is that related? (laughs) Yeah. That's great. And so then you did not get the chance to meet him in your life, but he had an influence on you nonetheless. Yeah, he really did. It's interesting. He died pretty young. He died when my mother was a teenager. He was only in the United States for a few years and never spoke English. Had a fun, you know, massive impact on psychological thought and thinking. Growing up, especially as a kid, I would just sometimes hear about and certainly see pictures of father, as my mother referred to him. And over the years, I started to find out who he really was. I mean, again, as a young man, I'm not sure if I – I almost ran away from the family legacy a little bit. I uh, worked on technology. I uh, was a programmer. I was not going to be on the human side of things. But then I really couldn't ignore, couldn't resist, couldn't avoid becoming more and more interested in, you know, the things that he was interested in. 
how do people get along? Why do they get along? Why don't they? What do we do with really intractable differences? What's the role of leadership? All these questions that he provided such great ideas about. So I became an organizational consultant, leadership consultant, change management consultant enough years ago that I had some phenomenal conversations with my mom, Dr. Miriam Lewin, about Lewin. People still write to me from all over the world asking about him. Unfortunately, my mother passed away, so I can't ask her anymore. But I'm very proud, really, to be doing anything that might follow in his footsteps in any way. Oh, that's great. And so then you've collected a number of your thoughts and ideas and synthesized them in your recent book, From Breakdown to Breakthrough. Sort of what's the big idea, the main point that you put forward there? Well, I wanted to answer a few questions. One of the key questions is, why is it under stress and change? Some business relationships get stronger, people pull together, sometimes form lifelong relationships. While other times under stress and difficulty, we fall apart, we turn on each other. Why does that happen? And so the big idea, I think the answer in the book is that what we want to have is resilient relationships. A resilient relationship is one that I define as being strong, flexible, and fair. And so if you have resilient relationships, that's how you're going to win the long game of business, I think. Okay. So they have those components of being strong, flexible, and fair. And so if they have those and the strength or the stress from the outside kind of makes them all the more powerful versus crumble. So, well, can you maybe walk us through a little bit? How does a relationship become strong and flexible and fair? Well, you think about one of the stories that I tell in the book that I call Mr. No. And back many years ago in the 1980s, I worked for EDS, Electronic Data Systems. This was Ross Perot's old company. Yeah. And there was an agreement between, you know, General Motors had actually acquired EDS And Roger Smith at the time and Ross Perot made this agreement that was supposed to be obviously a wonderful move to make. However, it was not well accepted and fought quite dramatically by the GM people. There were a lot of reasons for that. And what happened is EDS would basically come in with the attitude that you guys are in big trouble. (laughs) And if you're any good at what you did as far as the IT part of General Motors, you wouldn't need EDS. So we're here to save you. All right. So you can imagine that that doesn't create a very good relationship. Mm-hmm. And so I had one fellow that I had to work with. I was writing code in a certain area, and he had to sign off changes before they could be put into production. And he would never sign off any of the changes. He didn't trust us. He didn't know if we'd really done what we should have. In his opinion, we're probably doing the wrong thing anyway. And he was an incredible bottleneck. And it was kind of a rite of passage when you were a new guy at EDS on that team, they'd send you in to speak with this guy so that he could, you know, sort of chew you up and spit you out. Okay. And they sent me in, you know, and I'm sort of clutching my little sign-off sheet, you know, which won't protect me. And I had the same experience everybody else had because in some ways, that's what I expected. All right. And I saw this not really as the client, certainly not as a fellow human being, not as a reasonable person, but kind of, again, representative of this GM, rested, invested, you know, retired in place bureaucrat. And so he treated me, I think, in the way, in fact, that I deserve to be treated. So I needed a resilient relationship with him or the entire team, frankly, wasn't really going to get anywhere. And I wasn't planning on going anywhere. So this had to get worked out somehow. I knew he wouldn't go anywhere. So when I went into him one day, I went into his office I looked around the office and I saw a picture of two of his kids in hockey uniforms. Mm. 
And rather than just being the EDS corporate guy in the bright red tie, I acted like a human being, asked him about his kid. I'm kind of into hockey. <laughs> I pretended to be more into hockey than I was, I guess. <laughs> but I started to get to know him. So the first move in building a resilient relationship, and it may sound intuitive, but people skip it, is to find that other person as a real person. Understand them, not so that you can be necessarily best friends, but so you understand more about who they are, why they do what they do, what they want what they're trying to avoid, where are they in their journey? And then I can become a part of that. And then I can also see, will they do that for me? Most of the time when you do that for someone, they're going to return the favor. And so that's sort of the beginning of a resilient relationship is understanding who they are. From there, we can start to take some risks together. We can start to build more trust and eventually get into a virtuous kind of cycle where we're working together, we're creating value for each other. That's the strong part. We can do that even if conditions change. That's the flexible part. And the energy that people are putting into the business relationship and the rewards they're getting out are reasonable, are fair. And that's the fair part of strong, flexible, or fair. Okay. And so it all starts with being interested in that person as a fellow human and with normal interests and values and needs and families and, and all that. That's right. And a business they're trying to be accountable for, you know, they're trying to accomplish something. And if we can understand more about who they are, ironically, people won't tell you the truth about what they really want because they might be used to people using that against them. Okay. So it's ironic. You think, well, we ought to just tell each other what we really care about and then we could meet each other's needs. But too often that's really hard to do. And so, again, taking this first step is really an act of leadership that many business people, frankly, don't experience a lot. And it's intriguing. Somebody who really cares. Yeah. You say an act of leadership. I guess I'm also envisioning this from the perspective of if someone has a boss, a manager who's feels rough, like giving them a tough time, maybe demanding and critical and not offering a lot of you know support or uh-huh. encouragement, you're saying that the same first steps apply. Could you maybe paint a picture for how folks in that situation might put it into practice? Yeah, well, I'd say one of the first things I'd say to anybody in that situation, and I hope this isn't the case, but they have to be open to the idea that maybe this business relationship won't work out. Okay. So we don't want to lose a job. You know, it's very important to have a job and meet all the responsibilities that you're trying to by having that job. But I found over the long term, if you have the mindset that says, well, I've just got to take this or figure this out somehow, no matter what, I think that's limiting. I think it's better to say, look, I'm going to try really hard to work for this person. There are other reasons why this job makes sense, et cetera. And I just have to know that I may not be able to do it and keep myself intact, follow my own values. So one of the first things that I think people need to realize in a situation like that is as bad as it is and as complex as it might be, you might have a choice that you don't realize. And I think having that choice in mind how lets you act a little more powerfully. I would try to take those steps with the manager like that, where I try to find out more about why they're behaving the way they are. Again, just so I can understand it, again, it might be so difficult, they might be such a difficult manager or boss that it's pretty hard to get them to change their behavior. But I'm never going to change somebody's behavior if I don't first know what's driving it. So if the individual can think about, okay, if I want this relationship to work, I've got to understand my boss, even if it's not a pleasant situation or somebody that I like. So 
that's sort of the first step. Let's build an awareness so we can form a theory or a point of view that says, here's why that manager is doing what they're doing. Based on that, we can try to take actions. But eventually, you're going to have to take the risk, probably giving feedback to that boss before you go elsewhere or take other steps. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to know at the end of the day, have I been fair? Have I treated this person the way that even my manager should I, have I treated them a way that I would be proud of? And then if they don't respond in kind, maybe I'm going to take my good work elsewhere. Okay. And so then I'd like to hear when you say you want to get a sense for why do they behave the way they do? Right. I mean, I guess there's sometimes you can just directly ask, but other times you probably don't. Like, why are you always ragging on me? You know, I don't, that probably won't go over <laughs> so well. Do you have any sort of scripts or favorite phrases or questions that help get the ball rolling here? Yeah, I think you will have to take a chance and say that you're not happy with something. So okay. why would I ask unless I can say to the boss, you know, the way that you gave me that assignment last night, I didn't appreciate some aspects of that. Can I talk to you about it? Okay. And if they're like, no, I don't really care. I don't want to hear. Then, like I said, you're learning <laughs> as you go. One of the main ideas from the book is action learning, which is, again, a Lewinian concept, which is if you want to understand something, try to change it. Okay. So if I can't just directly say, you know, I didn't appreciate the way you gave me that assignment yesterday, then I'd have to describe what I didn't appreciate it. You know, why did that happen? Or what do you think about that? Or, you know, do you understand what I mean? then you can get hopefully an answer. If you can't get that answer, then that tells you something about this leader and that they're going to be difficult to work with if you can't build awareness. So the first step in changing anyone, you know, is to have a shared awareness. Or else there's really, you know, you're kind of dancing around the problem. You're not really taking action. Then based on how they react, you get a better sense of, but that's really the script. Here's what you're doing. Here's the impact it has. Mm -hmm. May I ask you about it? But there's a, you know, it's not okay with me must be said in some way. Right. You know, so that they can understand, you know, and again, a lot of people go, oh my goodness, I was stressed out. I shouldn't have taken it out on you. You know, I never want you to feel stressed like that at work. I'm glad you said something. Yeah, that's a good leader. We're all human. If somebody says, well, you just need to, you know, can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, <laughs> then at least you put a marker in. You know, you mentioned it once. Then if it keeps happening, you can mention it again. And then you have, they're not great choices. But the thing that I like to say sometimes to clients that are dealing with difficulties, and, you know, you can have a difficult boss no matter who you are, including the CEO, is I like to say that I'm not against anyone, but I am for myself. All right. So I don't need to control everybody else. I don't need to tell everybody else what's right or wrong, but I have some standards and values and beliefs for myself, and I must stand up for those because I'll tell you the truth, I don't care where you work, nobody else is going to stand up for you but you. All right. Most companies will react well to that, but you've got to do it. Well, and so I'm wondering then, as you've worked with, you know, many marquee clients and individuals at those companies with regard to some of these issues, I have a hunch that the fear associated with going there is probably disproportionate to the odds of having a positive outcome or conversation. I know this is hard to do, but if I could put you on the spot and say, approximately how often are folks pleasantly surprised by this exchange versus like, oh man, I got an earful and I kind of would have preferred to have not done that. Yeah, it's what we call a CLM, right? A career-limiting move. Yes, the infamous career-limiting move. Well, yeah, you're certainly putting me on the spot. You know, I've got to say, 
first, there is a little assessment. Is it safe? You know, we look at managers. One of the things that it's very important for managers to be aware of or anyone to be aware of is pattern establishment. So you're going to establish patterns with your colleagues, with your customers, with the people who work for you, the people you work for. If other people get their heads bitten off, if other people end up getting punished in one way or another for trying to give some sort of a feedback to the boss, then that tells you a lesson and you don't need to make a mistake and just kind of become the next one to face the consequences. Okay. Having done sort of the most basic assessment of safety, I would say 75 to more percent of the time people are happy. Okay. And somebody had to act like an adult in the situation. Again, what's my intention when I bring it up? Am I trying to be fair? Am I trying to serve my own needs without necessarily trying to counter anybody else's needs? Do they have to lose for me to win? So if my attitude is right and my intention is right, then the percentage goes up much higher. If you act like a victim, if you complain without a solution, if you are avoiding accountability, and most importantly, if you're doing all this while you're not doing so well in your basic job, well, now you're taking a much bigger risk. And I'd say the percentage is much more likely to backfire on you. So where's my standing? Do I have the right? Have I earned the ability? And, you know, if you're doing your basic job correctly, you have. But, you know, I want to do a little assessment first. I'd say the other thing is how painful is it? Life's too short. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with way too many people, as you say, in great companies. And there's got to be something redeeming. I love the work. I love my colleagues. I love the customer. I love the technology. I love whatever it is, something that has got to be worth you know, the trouble of dealing with a difficult manager. Because it's one of the top reasons, as you know, the old saying, people don't leave their company, they leave their boss. And so that's a key relationship. When you think about resilient relationships, one of the first things you want to do is assess all your relationships which ones are most important to you so you can make sure those are resilient. The relationship you have with your direct supervisors or as a manager with your team members, probably number one on everybody's list. Okay. Well, thank you. We went deep there and I loved it. So well, now I want to hit up another concept that you lay out a little bit. What's the story with a heat curve and different types of meetings? Yeah. So what happens with the heat curve, here's what I've noticed with a lot of the companies I work with, and this includes publicly traded you know, executive boards that are running large, you know, public companies. I find it, you know, across, you know, teams. And that's their ability to handle what I call heat. And I describe this ability in what I call the heat curve. So it's a little hard to do in a podcast. But if the listeners would imagine our little XY axis and on the horizontal line is heat. So heat is increasing, let's say left to right. And then high to low is the ability for breakdown or breakthrough. And the curve basically says that as heat in a meeting increases, the ability for breakthrough first increases. So what I mean by this is those great meetings where you're not bored, you're certainly not checking your email, you're really interested in the meeting, you can't wait to speak, we're finally discussing important ideas, we're resolving conflicts or we're creating innovation, great meeting. And so that's good heat and it leads to breakthrough. The problem is that eventually the heat can be too much. We can start to turn on each other. It can be too difficult, too stressful. And then the curve breaks down and goes all the way down into the breakdown space. So what does all this have to do with business? What people want is a culture that matches their strategy. And generally what people need is an innovative, 
fast-paced strategy, especially compared to kind of, quote, the old days, whenever those were, okay. <laughs> right? We talk about how things got to be faster. We've got to risk more. We've got to fail more. Innovation is corporate improv. We've got to have each other's back. We've got to be able to take chances together. We essentially need a good heat curve. Mm -hmm. So some companies I work with, some cultures, some even I've noticed this in some countries a little bit, though I'm not an expert on you know global culture by any means, some meetings cannot handle any heat at all. You've been in this kind of a meeting where as soon as anybody says something controversial or barely controversial, somebody says, let's take that offline. Ooh. <laughs> right? You've been in those meetings or the boss wrinkles his or her eyebrow. Literally, a micro expression can shut off all conversation in some cultures. That's a heat curve that at the first sign of heat goes bam, right down past into breakdown. And so what I do with a lot of organizations is help them shift their heat curve up and to the right, if you can kind of follow the visual there, which essentially means you have a climbing heat curve that doesn't drop off as soon. As eventually, I'll give you an example. Again, I'll leave the name of the company out, but it's very large, publicly traded a consumer products company. They've been very successful, but they were much slower in product innovation than their competitors, literally on the clock, on the calendar. It was costing them a lot of money. So they needed to be much faster, more decisive. The problem was that that created a lot of heat. People were used to managing risk. They had what they called a nice culture, and therefore mm -hmm. they had nice meetings. The problem with the nice meeting is as soon as somebody said, how can you say that? Didn't we try that in the product two years ago? And it's not, why would it work now if it didn't work last time? <laughs> now, that to me is a really good strategic question. Why should it work now if it didn't work last time? But the guy who ran that project two years ago, who's in the room, that was his baby and he did everything to make it work. He's going to take that personally. Yeah. And so rather than letting the heat go up, answering that question and maybe having a great product breakthrough, somebody says, well, hold on a minute. You know, Joe did a great job and, you know, everybody tried and it really wasn't Joe's fault. It didn't go wrong. And they, you know, shut the heat down and they try to avoid going into breakdown. So that's what I mean by the heat curve. You need healthy heat, positive heat, heat that generates light. We don't want to have people feel attacked. Then they're going to start to defend themselves. Again, that's what a resilient team has. See, in my mind, and maybe one of the other key points of the book, yes, what's a key point of the book? Another one, I think, is that resilience is too often right now in books and research seen as an individual trait. Hmm. Michael is resilient or Michael is not resilient. Leaders are resilient. Take this survey about your attitudes in life. You know, listen to the story about the endurance with Shackleton, you know, which is a wonderful story, if you know it. And these are about resilient individuals. We've studied people after 9-11 in New York. How did they bounce back? Uh, I've had personal experience in my life that certainly tested my individual resilience. But what the heat curve is measuring is the collective resilience. I don't think resilience is really an independent individual phenomena. It's not a leadership trait as much as it's a social phenomena. We are resilient or we are not resilient. That's why I focus on the relationship. The unit to me is not the person. I'm not trying to type the individual and how resilient they are. I'm trying to figure out and type the relationship, how resilient the relationship or series of relationships are. 
So when the drivers of a heat curve in terms of being more up and to the right, as in we can just candidly say what we need to say and be enriched by each other's perspective, you know, with having a bold, vigorous, candid discussion, that's good news in terms of getting stuff done and innovations and and all that kind of good stuff. What is behind that then? Is it just a matter of each relationship in the web or matrix of relationships is strong, flexible, and fair? Or how do you go about getting that shift of the heat curve going? Yes. In one sense, it is very much about those relationships in the room. The meeting is really reflecting. It is where those relationships are made. But if it's the only place they're made, then you're missing something. And that the members of the leadership team, if they're in there making collection decisions, must be because they have some sort of interdependence with each other. So I would say, yes, it's very important that we start with the individual relationships in the group. I would also say there are things you can do in meetings that will help us handle more and more heat. Some of these things are somewhat familiar to people, the idea of having some ground rules. Okay. How do we listen to each other? What do we do when we disagree? So we want to learn the more productive methods for handling conflict. And that's one of the key things that's going to help us climb that heat curve. There's an old saying I like, whenever two people are arguing, they're both right. Okay. (laughs) Now, you say that in a technology firm with engineers and people's heads will explode. No, no, no. There's only one answer that can't be possible. Two people who disagree can't be right. But if I think about it that way and I say, what is right about what the other party or group is saying? How is that right, at least for them? Mm -hmm. What are they solving for? This is usually called interests when we talk about conflict and negotiation. So what are people's underlying interests? And so many of these executives, the same executive team I was talking about that needed to be bolder, needed to innovate, but couldn't handle heat. One of the things that would happen to them is when they disagreed, they would become what we call very positional, meaning they would have one position, it's the only answer, and the other person would have the other position. You know, that product's going to succeed or it's fail, or this is the right price to charge, or no, we have to charge this other price. These seem quite intractable, and that's where you're testing how good your heat curve is. Rather than arguing back and forth over the position and usually ending up with a political resolution based on power, we want to focus more on interests. And we had to teach those executives how to share those interests. Again, reveal something about themselves, reveal where their thinking is coming from, understanding that, and then trying to build a solution that meets as many interests as possible rather than getting into the win-lose kind of a battle. That's one way that we do it. And you mentioned ground rules as well. I'd love to hear, in some ways, I think that certain ground rules are just assumed or fine. But you tell me, what would you say are some examples of ground rules that are frequently not in place or not followed and make a world of difference in terms of the meeting's ability to have a good heat curve? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm totally with you on the idea that a lot of ground rules are not all that valuable. When I go into a company and I see a laminated set of ground rules on the wall Uh in every meeting room, on the one hand, I'm thinking, all right, if they really use that, that's good. On the other hand, I'm thinking a laminated plaque on the wall is not a living thing. And we kind of wave at the ground rules, but people don't enforce them. Okay. So there's what grounds you rules you have, but almost more important than that is what happens when they're violated? Does anybody do anything? Does anybody say, uh, you know, we have a ground rule about letting people finish or we have a ground rule about listening before providing a counterpoint of view? I don't think you did that just then. 
That's a moment where you really have a good heat curve. If someone can say out loud in the meeting, hold on a minute, we have ground rules here. Either they're not real or you just violated them. All right. And you get to call me on it when I violate the ground rules. And you know what? I probably will. Why are the ground rules there? Because they're typical errors we make. They're rules <laughs> to try to avoid those typical errors. That's why don't have – if your meetings are perfect, then I guess you don't need ground rules. Oh, well said. Typical errors we make. That's why they're printed. <laughs> yeah, that's what they should be. That's, that's why, right? Hey, guys, we usually run over. Okay, let's have a ground rule to stay on the agenda timing. I mean, that's a very simplistic, tactical, not a very strategic ground rule. But again, following them, you know, there's a lot of companies or that used to have them, but they didn't work for them. So they abandoned ground rules, not because ground rules are a bad idea, but because nobody enforced them. Essentially, they're working agreements. They're aspects of our culture. Our meeting is a microcosm of the culture that we have at our company. So it should reflect our values. I would say also that the key one that people miss the most valuable one that's not on anybody's list is a ground rule that I call a clear framework for decision-making. So what happens too often in meetings and in processes at companies is we start rushing to try to make a decision and nobody really has talked about how the decision is going to be made. Perfect. Who exactly is the final decision-maker? Mm-hmm. What's the deadline for this decision-maker? Who are the key stakeholders? And what is the fallback option if we can't reach an agreement? What happens in too many companies, they avoid decision-making, they make a decision, but certain people don't agree, so they get to object, and we end up making the same decision over and over. We slow down implementation, we reduce ownership, we reduce accountability. So I think decision-making is an important place to work because it's so critical. And so if you're in a meeting, you want to improve your heat curve, you want to be able to handle more heat, I would say, hold on, before we start talking about the pros and cons, if it's not clear, ask. How exactly are we making this decision? Sometimes we don't have to agree if we've already you know, clarified, you know what, we're all giving input to Mary and Mary's going to make the final decision. So after a certain point, we can handle that heat because we don't have to agree. Now, Mary's going to have to figure out what to do based on the input. But having meetings where consensus is implied, but isn't really how we're going to make a decision, that is really damaging. So... Don't pretend it's consensus. If you don't know how the decision's being made, then you don't know how to participate. So find out. Oh, Michael, this is so good. Absolutely. And I have flashbacks to consulting at Bain where we had a Fortune 500 retail organization client. And we had a tool called Rapid for the roles and decision-making for recommender, approver, performer, informer, and decider. And it was, that was always a question, who has the D, the, who has the decision-making authority? And then it really does slow things down when it is an implied, well said, an implied consensus, but not a real consensus. And then what I found is sometimes when folks challenge or question, hey, well, hey, well, who's really in charge or owns the project or who gets to make the decision? Sometimes folks say, oh, well, it's collaborative. And I kind of view that as a non-answer. It's kind of like punting. It's like, well, we don't really know. Just sort of figure it out. And I think that's destructive. What's your take? Yeah, there's so much language for decision-making companies. That's one reason we can tell that it's important, right? Who's got the D is mm-hmm. one. Let's be collaborative. That's one. I have a whole little personal collection of these. <laughs> one of my favorites slash least favorites, if you know what I mean, is socialize. Well, let's socialize this idea. Sometimes people reach, quote, alignment. 
Now, I'm not against collaboration, alignment, et cetera. They're all fine. But often they do exactly what you're talking about. It's a way to avoid getting clear. Mm -hmm. It's a way to wiggle around and have some lack of accountability, lack of ownership. Here's my belief, and I've seen this over and over. People actually, in the end, love clarity on decision-making. Amen. Right? They don't have to get their way. They just want a fair hearing. Mm -hmm. And I believe they deserve that. In companies, people don't always get to have their way, Mm -hmm. but they ought to get a fair hearing. And so, again, if I say to you, look, we've got a deadline in this decision. It's complicated. It's important. There's a lot of stakeholders. But if we're going to take a good decision, here's what I'm going to make it by. And here's the process. I'd love you to give me some input. We're going to have a big meeting with a lot of the stakeholders next week. I'm going to send out a request for input on email. I'm going to draft the draft decision and I'll send it back out to people. You get to give me comments. Then I'll make the final decision. All right. Awesome. So we've got the process. We got the roles. We know who ultimately decides. We've got how the input emerges, the deadline. Anything else on the checklist for decision clarity? Scope. So the only thing in the little decision-making framework is the scope. So one of the things that often gets us into trouble is the scope of a decision. Well, wait a minute. What are you deciding? Are you changing the entire way the sales team is structured or are you changing something about territory assignments? What decision are we making here? Now, both decisions matter a great deal to the salespeople, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very important that they know, you know, how big or small is this? Now, sometimes it needs to be big. Sometimes if it isn't big enough, people aren't interested in solving the problem. But other times people are assuming implications. Again, these things aren't clear. We don't know how to process them. Our heat curve drops off and we fall back to, you know, this kind of dysfunction. So What I'm trying to do as a leader or project manager or somebody who's just trying to implement something, I'm trying to give people a functional way to express their needs so they don't take dysfunctional ways to do it. Okay. That's where the relationship goes into breakdown. So in a way, as a leader, you know, it's tough because in the end, I'm accountable for creating an environment where people can give effective input and not feel like they're getting rolled over. And I'm doing that while I'm running a business. And so... In the end, that's what's great about creating an effective culture, trying to have strong, flexible, and fair relationships, is it's an asset. It becomes an asset to the company. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Well, now you also discuss three shifts that need to occur for developing a resilient relationship. And could you give us maybe the one-minute version of each of these and how we can make it? All right. Yeah. So the one minute version. So these are strategies. So as you said, the outcome is a strong, flexible and fair relationship. How do I do that? So the first shift is to go from ignorance to knowledge. And that's again, we talked about that a little bit prior in this podcast. Try to understand the whole person. Certainly it might be mostly on a professional basis, could also be in a personal basis. Who are they and reveal to them who you are. So move from ignorance, just not knowing, not understanding, to knowledge. That's the first one. Once you've done that, you can try the second strategy, which we call moving from doubt to trust. So if I'm going to have a resilient relationship, I can't have doubt about that relationship. The metaphor I use is like a rickety chair. If you've ever been forced to use a chair that's not really well made, it's kind of you can't put your whole weight on it. It might collapse. In the end, it's not restful. It's worse than no chair at all. If we build trust in a relationship, it becomes like a solid chair and lean into it. It's not going to fall apart under pressure. And so trust has to do with understanding people's intentions and seeing how their actions are consistent with that. 
Then finally, after moving from doubt to trust, we talk about what we call moving from talk to action. So one of the things I found that I thought was missing is that so much advice has to do with what to say. How do we communicate? How do we have difficult conversations or courageous conversations or fierce conversations? Yes, crucial <laughs> conversations. And let me be clear, I believe in those approaches and they are necessary to what I'm talking about and to being effective. However, they're insufficient in certain situations. The curve runs out. The old saying was you can't talk yourself out of a situation that you acted yourself into. Okay. Right. So when I'm working with trying to build resilient teams and organizations and relationships, we're asking, don't ask what you can say. Ask what action can you take that will prove to the other party or person what you're trying to say. If you couldn't send your message, again, what do we hear all the time? Employees are our greatest asset. We want empowerment. We want engagement. We want all these things. We want your input to be effective. We care what you think. But then they sort of, this is all lip service. And when things morale is low, too many leaders call a meeting. What mm -hmm. I'm interested in doing is figuring out what action can I take? So that's the third strategy when you're dealing with a situation, what's moving from talk to action. The other great thing, again, about that is it sort of reinforces that action learning idea that says, look, let me take an action and see how the other party responds. If I take a risk, will this person rise to the occasion? Or will they, you know, worry about their own interest and let me drop to the wayside? Okay, that's great. Thank you. Well, tell me, Michael, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about some of your favorite things? Well, I'll take us towards one of my favorite things right. while staying on the topic. And this is the Grateful Dead. So the idea of resilient relationships that are strong, flexible, and fair, it's my intention that these can be used in any relationship. So that's a relationship certainly between people, but it could be a relationship between a company and their customers. It can be the relationship you have with an idea or an organization. And I've had, let's call it a long relationship with the Grateful Dead. I mean, Grateful Dead are gone now because Jerry Garcia passed away. But I started attending Grateful Dead concerts as a very young man and went on for decades doing it. And I was not alone. Their fans were the most loyal. This is a band that made mm -hmm. record amounts of money on the road that only had one hit single in their entire time. So while they were not a commercial success in that way, they were incredible success because their relationship with their fans was resilient beyond belief. People would travel with them. They'd give up careers to go be with them. They wouldn't attend one concert. They'd attend 12 or 20. Yeah. And that's because the Grateful Dead for a rock band, and this has been analyzed, by the way, by other business people besides myself, who have tried to understand how they did what they did for so long, and the remaining members are still at it, you know, more than 50 years after they started. First of all, their relationship with their fans is strong. Not only do they provide music that the fans enjoy, but going to a Grateful Dead concert was like going to, I don't know what, summer camp, New Year's Eve, and Christmas all rolled into one. You know, it was a huge happening. People had friends that they would only see on tour or at the shows. People sold their wares. There was a huge thing in the parking lot. So people got a lot of value from being a dead fan, even beyond just the music. Flexible, they played everywhere, and they provide many different ways to get tickets so that if you were really a fan, you were highly likely to be able to see them and experience them and even get a good seat. And then finally, they were very fair to their fans. One of the things they did that really nobody else does except for a couple of bands is allow taping 
So for many years, if you got the right kind of ticket, you were allowed to go to the show and literally record the show and then share that recording with anybody you wanted. This is their product, and they were giving it away for free. The only requirement they have is that the fans couldn't make money selling the music. And that, again, continued kind of to build the fan base, and people who couldn't be at shows could hear the shows. It made them want to go even more, created all these more relationships. So uh, just a little bit about one of my favorite bands and how they were so resilient with their fans. Oh, that is a nice little case study. Thank you. And so now could you share with us a favorite quote? Um, I'm going to go ahead and give you a Lewin quote. This is nothing more practical than a good theory. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? They did a study that found that people, there's a lot of talk about, you know, saying my goals out loud. They did a study that said the people who announced they were going to lose weight actually were less likely to lose weight than the people that didn't stay, tell anyone. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. The reason they believed their theory was that they got a little reward from telling people. This reward reduced their desire to do the actual thing. Gotcha. And how about a favorite book? I'm going to go way back to a classic of organizational development by Will Schutz called The Truth Option, which I just think is an amazing title for a book. You know, there is that option. (laughs) (laughs) One of several. (laughs) Yes. And and Will Schutz, you may or may not have heard of him, but he was another sort of pillar of uh, organizational work here in the San Francisco Bay Area for many years very focused on resilience. I'll sneak in another favorite quote from Will Schutz, which is, you can't go anywhere new until you tell the truth about where you are. Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, whether it's a product or service or app or something helps you be awesome at your job? I really think that appreciative inquiry is one of the tools that a lot of us use in change and in coaching. I had the privilege of meeting Frank Burnett, who is one of the professors who developed appreciative inquiry. So a little plug for him. And that tool of uh, using appreciative inquiry when working as a coach or a leader. Okay. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that's helpful? Playing music. I think music is uh, so important, at least to me. I can't imagine life without it. And there are so many studies that show that it keeps our brains sharp as we get older. I can entertain myself. But most importantly, again, music is a social activity for me. I've got my own little band and we play and perform and build such great connections. And I think if it's such an important regular practice, uh, it activates so many parts of your mind, your body, your soul. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite nugget, a sort of articulation of your message that really seems to resonate and get folks nodding their heads and taking notes? What you resist persists. So the idea is that, again, every time there's an argument, both sides are right. It's sort of another way of saying the same idea. If I push hard against something, or someone, usually they're going to push hard back. Mm -hmm. And so I think people appreciate this idea that says, again, I'm not against anybody. I am still for myself. But is there a way to stop resisting against something so that we can implement a change? That's where we often get stuck. Okay. And tell me, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I'd send them to my website, michaelpapanek.com. Again, Michael, and last name is P-A-P-A-N-E-K. You can contact me there. I'm at michael at michaelpapnick.com or there's contact info on the website. And I'll ask people, I'll mention that we don't have it out yet, 
but I'm just getting ready to release a large new part of the site about Lewin. I have a lot of personal family heirlooms from Kurt Lewin and some pretty interesting stories to tell. So we're going to be adding that to the website pretty soon. Oh, great. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I would say, remember that you don't need to be subject to your relationships. You're actually in charge of them. Okay. Michael, thank you. This is so fun. Good luck and keep on rocking. Thank you so much, Pete. I really enjoyed it. What I love so much in those ground rules is talking about the decision. Who is the decider? When will it be made? What is the scope of the decision? Does someone else approve it? Who implements it? Provides input to it? Oh, that level of clarity just blows away cobwebs and just accelerates team progress. I've seen it in action and I encourage you to don't be shy about asking some of those questions to get to the bottom of that. And we can really breathe a sigh of relief as the smoke clears and you know what's up and decisions get made, stuff gets done and meetings suddenly become a little bit more interesting and real progress happens. It feels good. So that was my favorite piece. Hope you dug it as well. And again, if you want to check out the show notes, transcripts, links to stuff we talked about, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep158. And I hope you'll push subscribe so you'll hear from folks like our very next guest. It's Tasha Urich, and she has some intriguing research insights about how we are not as self-aware as we think we are and the implications of that and how it is a key driver to being awesome at your job. So I hope to catch you then in peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 